Welcome to the Grand Conversation, the Machon Siach Podcast. Machon Siach at SAR High School, honoring the memory of Belda K. Lindenbaum, Zichrona Levracha, is the research arm of SAR High School, where faculty bridge theory and practice on matters of Jewish education, curriculum, and culture. The Grand Conversation Podcast features the faculty fellows of Machon Siach discussing their research. I'm your host, Shmuel Hain, Rosh Beit Midrash at SAR High School, and co-director of Machon Siach, our producer is the immortal Rabbi Avi Bloom, director of technology at SAR High School. For today's Grand Conversation podcast, we are thrilled to be talking with Dr. Rivka Press-Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz is associate principal of general studies at SAR High School and co-director of Machon Siach. She is also a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. We are recording this less than a week before Election Day, and in conjunction with our November issue of Inside the Conversation, which features Dr. Schwartz's research paper on cultivating a modern Orthodox ethic of citizenship. We're also recording this during a pandemic through masks, so apologies for some of the muffled talk. Good afternoon, Rivka, and welcome to the Grand Conversation. Good afternoon, Shmuel. I'm delighted to be here. Thrilled to have you here and really looking forward to this conversation just a few days away from the election, and we're going to take a look at the larger picture of politics and citizenship in the modern Orthodox community. Can you share with our listeners the background for Machon Siach convening a research group on the topic of citizenship? When did you decide to put together that group, and what were the group's goals at the outset? We're all standing here now, as you said, Shmuel, on the cusp of another election, but I'm going to ask our listeners to cast their minds back to the last one four years ago and to what the experience was like of going through that election cycle and the aftermath in the modern Orthodox community and the extent to which we certainly felt as educators, but I also personally felt as a community member that our community had gotten so deeply divided on questions of politics that we lost a sense of shared citizenship as Americans, what it meant to be invested in and committed to this enterprise and working to make it better. And this research group grew out of wanting to address that second problem, not the politics problem, but the citizenship problem. So what were some of the things that the research group did to examine the question of citizenship in the modern Orthodox community? Well, the first thing we did is we examined the question of citizenship. What does it mean to be a citizen? We spent a long time thinking about the question of, are there any obligations or responsibilities that attend to American citizenship? And when you try to dig into it, it turns out to be very hard to identify any. Paying taxes, non-citizens who work in the United States have to pay taxes. Serving in the military, we have a volunteer army, there's no longer a draft. What exactly do you have to do because you're a citizen? And it turns out there are really very few obligations of citizenship. And we tend to think about our citizenship much more in terms of the rights it confers on us than about the obligations it demands. So that was one thing we researched. Another thing that another member of the group researched was how we lost some shared cohesive narrative of America as we've done some vital work to correct, you know, the pretty fairy tale stories that we told about the founding fathers and the early republic and everything else. And then people said, hey, stop, wait a minute. They owned human beings as slaves. That wasn't such a pretty fairy tale story. And look at the treatment of this group and that group and the ugliness and the history and the pain and all of those things that we know about. And somehow, maybe by the time we're done with all of that, we're left without some kind of unifying story or meaning of America that we can rally behind as citizens. So those are some of the things the group thought about. And then we definitely also thought about us as modern Orthodox Jews. What does Judaism have to say about being a citizen of a democratic republic? 
that gives us voice, that gives us representation, and that allows us to work to shape the society, to what end should we shape it, in cooperation with whom, trying to do what. So those are among the questions that the group examined. So let's tackle the first and last points that you mentioned, because your paper uh, focuses on and really bemoans the transactionalism of the American modern Orthodox community when it comes to its civic engagement. Can you talk about why you think that is such a problem and what we can do to transform our engagement for our students and our community at large? So I just want to define what we mean when we say transactionalism. And that's the idea of approaching politics and approaching our place within broader American society, not answering the big questions of how can we support human flourishing and what can we best do to make that happen, but the much more particularistic questions of what do we need from government and how can we get it for ourselves. So that's what I mean when I talk about transactionalism. And you've said, Shmulan, rightly, because you've heard me say this many times, that I bemoan transactionalism. But I actually would like to mention a critique of my bemoaning that I get. I think it's worth bringing in. Professor Michael Avi Helfand of Pepperdine University and a friend of Machon Siach, I think it's okay to say that, has said to me many times that it is a great thing about America that every group gets to get out there in the fray, advocate for their own interests, try to advance their own needs, and that is part of what it means to be American, and that modern Orthodox Jews are no better, no worse than anyone else in this regard, nor should we be asked to be. Everybody else gets to try to advance their own interests. Why can't we? And so that's pushed me and pushed my thinking to try to reframe a little bit. And for me, I think this is aspirational, actually. I'm not saying that it's wrong or terrible for us to advocate for our own interests, but I would love to see us as a community engaging more in the deep questions of what we think a society should look like and then how we help shape that society to those ends. Hmm. So it's not transactionalism per se, but whether or not we're able to also uh, promote larger ideals and see beyond our own particular interests and needs. It's a question of whether we see ourselves as like acted upon by this government. The government's going to do stuff to me. I hope it does good stuff and doesn't do bad stuff. Or whether we see ourselves as agents here. We are stakeholders. We have a share in owning this enterprise, which is a remarkable thing for me as an observant Jew in the United States. My grandfather, wherever he came from in Eastern Europe, was not a stakeholder, and he wasn't empowered, and he wasn't an owner. He was absolutely acted upon, and he just had to hope that the acting upon was benevolent, and it certainly wasn't always. And we have this incredible, remarkable gift and privilege to be stakeholders and owners, and what do we want to do with that? And it pains me to think that the the end, the boundaries of what we want to do with that is to think about our own needs and how we can meet them. Yes, that's important, and yes, we should do that, but what next and what more? So part of this comes from a, a historical awareness and framework of the difference that America presents from our previous stops in our, in, in our exile. And so as a historian, are you making the argument that America is fundamentally, qualitatively different than every other place Jews have been in our history so that we shouldn't just look at ourselves as being acted upon? I want to say that for me, this is not primarily an intellectual argument. This is actually deeply emotional. I am a total sentimental squish when it comes to the United States of America. 
I will call myself a patriotic American, even though in some circles that's a term that's fallen out of fashion. I get emotional every time I go to vote. I take my kids with me. We get the stickers, the whole business. This year, New York State is letting you vote early. I am not voting early. I am walking into the polls on November 3rd with my children because that's how we do it according to the traditional ways. None of this newfangled modern early voting for me. Thank you. Um, and it's, it's interesting for me to think about where that comes from. Um, I'm not sure that necessarily all American Orthodox Jews feel that way. I definitely trace it back to my maternal grandfather, who served in the American army in World War II, having come over here as a young boy from Poland, and who had a very deep and present sense of what it meant for him for his life, and therefore for his children and his grandchildren, that he got out of Eastern Europe when he did, and that he came to this country when he did. And his stories of his service as a GI in World War II are just a whole other thing, but his deep and abiding patriotism was something that I heard and grew up with and imbibed and would like to pass on. And that's more than a sense of like, America's good because it did this or that for me. It's what an opportunity we have been offered here. And then I want to ask myself, my community, my students, what do we do with that opportunity? So for me, I was born on January 20th, 1977, which was Jimmy Carter's inauguration day. So it's almost like as since birth, I've been connected to politics and watching Meet the Press and other kinds of things. Do you remember, you, other than your maternal grandfather, when the, the issue of, of the modern Orthodox community or the larger Orthodox community and its politics became something that you wanted to think more deeply about? So my students are all now going to start to roll their eyes at me because they know you don't spend more than about 10 minutes with me, as you podcast listeners haven't without hearing that I didn't, in fact, grow up in the modern Orthodox community. I grew up in the yeshivish or black hat, ultra-Orthodox, whatever you'd like to characterize it as, community in Brooklyn. And I certainly do not remember a discourse in that community about how are we citizens, how are we invested owners in this enterprise. The conversations in that community were very much about being acted upon by government. And how do we ameliorate that? How do we make that acting upon as benign, as not harmful, as positive as possible? But I myself have moved into the modern Orthodox world. And partially, there are, many, there are many things that distinguish the modern Orthodox world from the Haredi world. But one of them is a different sense of how we interact with the non-Jewish world around us. I was taught in school in Jewish history classes, you know, that it is halakha biyadua, that non-Jews hate the Jews, that anti-Semitism is a persistent and universal reality that we should always expect, that our interactions with non-Jews should always be shaped by that awareness and understanding and without minimizing the very real and present threat of anti-Semitism that we all experience and know about in the world today. That's not how I interact with the non-Jewish world. It's not how our modern Orthodox community interacts with the non-Jewish world. And I want to think about framing our interaction with broader American society differently than, I hope they're okay to us, let's do whatever we can to make this okay. So once we discuss the modern Orthodox community and our obligations as American citizens to America, I wonder how that relates to our religious Zionist commitments to Israel. We've spent the last several minutes talking about what it means to be an American and the commitments that that me makes us have. How does that square with our obligations and our commitments as religious Zionists? How do we teach to both? So I'm going to follow the time-honored interviewee um, trick of answering the question that I wish you asked me, not the question you asked me. And I want to start by telling you a story. Our work on citizenship in SAR High School wasn't just through the research of Machon Siach, although that's what I'm talking about here. In parallel to that research, we worked on an undertaking to bring civics education into SAR High School. 
And that undertaking was spearheaded by a remarkable organization called Civic Spirit, founded by former Yeshiva University Vice President Rabbi Robert Hurt and Virginia Bear Hurt, and led by the incomparable educator and thinker about citizenship, Tamara Twiel. And the way this organization worked was that it was trying to bring citizenship education specifically into religious schools to think about the ways in which we as religious people are uniquely positioned to talk about citizenship. And they started with a cohort of six yeshiva day schools and six Catholic schools, and they brought educators from those schools together for a week to talk about citizenship, to learn religious texts about citizenship, and to think about structuring citizenship classes. The good old days of conferences. Wow. Right. So there we are sitting together and talking and talking about how we teach our kids to be citizens. And somehow it came up, we said to them that our kids are always sort of a little holding back. They're invested in America, but they're not totally invested because there's always a plan B. If things go really badly here, we all know we can call up Nefesh Benefesh, call up El Al, might be a little harder now than it used to be, but hop on a plane and when we get off, somebody will hand us an Israeli passport and a Tudat Sehut and welcome you're a citizen. And therefore, our investment here is different. And what was fascinating about it is that the Catholic school educators we were talking to were teaching in schools that were largely minority, largely people of color, often first-generation immigrants, many of them low-income. And yet they were totally invested in this American project because they have no choice and they have no alternative and they have to make it work here because there's nothing else. And they were really taken aback to hear that our kids all have, we all have, I have, we all have in the back of our heads. If it gets really bad here, we all know we have a plan B. And I think that keeps us from investing as totally as we might have. So you were really asking a different question. You were asking, how do we teach to be invested without it going against Zionism? And that's the question that we can move on to next if you'd like. But I also think that there is a way in which we're kind of always holding back on America a little bit. We're never really all in. And I do think it shapes the ways we interact. How do we push for our students to feel more all in when we do have this fallback then, I guess would be the question. So I don't, it does not seem to me to be a contradiction to say that we talk about as Eretz Yisrael as the ancestral and rightful homeland of the Jewish people. But until we all make our way back there, which right now I'm sitting in a school that has 600 students and 100 faculty, and here we are, and there are many more like us, until we all make our way back there, this is the society we are living in. This is the society that we have reaped enormous benefit from. And again, and this is the society that each one of us is a part owner of. And even if it's for as long as I am here, what is my responsibility? What is my obligation to help promote a more perfect union and ensure general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And those are things that I should be working for for as long as I'm here, even if I think that at some point I should be or will be going somewhere else. And now to the other question about teaching to uh, the obligations as American citizens while not diminishing the religious Zionist commitments that we have. So there is a place here where actually this is really where I think the rubber meets the road and things get very difficult. And I want to name a point of real tension. If you believe that the political party or the political approach, which is best for the United States, is also best for Medina Yisrael, then you have no conflict. Knock yourself out. That's great. Vote, your, vote both your American vision and your support for Israel, and it's all great. But if you experience the sense that the candidate who might be the best or the party that might be the best or the political approach that might be the best for what you care about in Israel and what you care about in America are not the same, then there is a point of real conflict and tension. 
And I don't think that the answer necessarily, I am not, certainly, not, I am not advocating and saying, well, then Israel has to take hindmost and we have to do, there are people who will say, well, look, there are 300 and however many, 20 million other Americans who are going to care about the United States and no one else is going to care about Israel but us and we have to. What I think that there is a, a more complicated and nuanced and challenging conversation to have here about when we experience this conflict. Part of the answer is it's not all about voting at the national and federal level. Some of it may be thinking about what we do at the state and local level, where obviously Israel about issues about Israel are much less implicated at the state and local level. And then am I thinking about what promotes human flourishing and the bettering of society, or I'm only thinking about my immediate community's needs. So I don't think these are simple issues to resolve, and I don't think there's an answer of there's only one way to resolve them. But I think there are ways that we can be, I mean, just to say a very a very SAR thing and a very modern orthodox thing, there are ways we can be willing to live with the tension instead of trying to collapse the tension into making everything line up neatly so all of the right is on one side and all of the wrong is on the other side, which is a posture that we so often see people adopting in our politics. I don't think it's really helpful to very much. So let's turn our attention now. This has been fascinating thus far, and I we could keep on going on much of the the broader ideological issues of teaching towards citizenship. But I want to turn our attention to the to the upcoming election and remind you that eight years ago, I moderated an after-school mishmar debate between you and Rabbi Ruben Gober as part of a school-wide mishmar on the eve of the Obama-Romney election. We also had Return for the Returns, which was a beloved annual or biannual program where the students came back late at night to see the election returns. Do you think pandemic aside we could host such programs now with the increased polarization of our community and America more generally, are these kinds of uh, programs even possible in our community? So I will start by saying that we are hosting Return for the Returns this year. We are doing it on Zoom. We are thinking about what it looks like to do it differently. But I, that's not just, oh, we wanna have co-curriculars. That actually comes from a deep commitment that it cannot be that in this moment of polarization, we just retreat into our separate corners and stop speaking to each other. That is something, by the way, you don't need me to tell you this, but you know is happening all over the United States. That kind of sorting of people into intellectual and political silos in which I talk to the people with whom I agree and I have as little as possible to do with the people with whom I don't agree is happening everywhere. And I, for a long time, I thought our community was different. I said, well, we are defined by our religious commitments. So we live together and we go to shul together and we spend time together, even if our politics are different. And then a former student of mine said the following to me, which was such a profound insight that I've been quoting it ever since. He said, you think that because you live in Washington Heights in upper Manhattan, a community which is basically one shul. So yeah, everybody still comes and dominates together. He said in my suburban community and in every other larger Jewish community where there are multiple shuls, People know which is the conservative shul and which is the liberal shul. And actually, even as a tiny religious community, we are sorted by our politics. And then at one point, I was talking to an SAR parent who participated in some of the early work of the Mahon Seach citizenship cohort. And he said to me, it's not just sorted by shul, it's sorted by minion. And the Hashkama minion has different politics than the main minion. This was all something that had completely eluded me. I didn't know anything about that. And so that's a place where I think that we have to be doing conscious work against that tendency. We can't both be 
sorted by our politics within a community that's so small to start with. There's got to be a way that we can figure out how to talk to or engage with or even just physically be in the same space with each other. Four years ago, we did return for the returns in the school. And we did it with kids with different political affiliations and inclinations and supporting different candidates. And for those of you who remember election night four years ago, it was a very emotional night, whichever way you landed. And we were in school together. We were in school watching our returns together. And we will be doing it again this year. Could we have a political debate? Um, I think that there are reasons in which that is difficult right now. Not, I don't think, because the issues are untalk about a bull, but because so much of the subject of this campaign cycle has not been about the issues. It has been about personality. And I'm not sure how productive it would be um, to, to have a debate around that. We just did. We're doing this in all of our classes. The history department is teaching about the election issues in our classes. But as we talk about the candidates' positions on the minimum wage or international trade, there is a way in which it seems a little bit to be missing the boat, because that's not most of what they're hearing the discussion around the election being about. How does one then navigate maintaining personal views while simultaneously, as, a, as an educator, allowing for a range of political views to be shared in the classroom? And specifically, what happens if one thinks American democracy is at stake in this election. How do you have a conversation if one believes that the one candidate is, let's just name it, one candidate is going to usher in a socialist era and the other one is uh, an autocrat who's going to destroy all uh, norms of American democracy. That's the stakes that it seems like we're talking about in this election. It makes it hard to have a classroom discussion around that. So I'll start first with your first question, which is, how does a teacher who has political views run a classroom in which students feel free to talk and engage and share? And there are really two, there are two shitot in this in terms of teaching American politics and government. One approach, one shita is that the teacher should be completely opaque, that a student should have no idea what a teacher thinks about politics, and that the students from sitting in the teacher's class should have no way of knowing what the teacher thinks about anything. And that is the right way for a teacher to teach about American politics and government. The can't, other, can't have a Twitter handle then. Though. Right. I was going to say, it's a little obvious that that's not approach, the approach that I adhere to. It also means one can't speak publicly outside of school on these issues. I suppose that's not really true. One could, and one could say, I'm a different person in the classroom. And in the classroom, I inhabit a persona in which nothing that I say or do outside comes into the classroom. The other approach is an approach that says, not just that's not doable, but there might even be something, I hesitate to say this because teachers who do this skillfully can do it very skillfully and leave students absolutely having no idea where they stand. But there's something about that that is less than forthright, because of course you do have positions, and that means in some way you are inclined in one direction or another. And in not forthrightly owning that, you are making it impossible for students to challenge that, call you on that if they think you're being slanted or biased in some way. You are in fact not quite taking responsibility for your own biases. So this is the other um, approach, but then it is really important that a teacher do absolutely everything they can do to make clear that this is a classroom in which there is space for other points of view to be heard and aired. And there are many ways that teachers can do that and set the classroom up that way. There was one year when I said to my students 
that um, an assignment they had was that over the course of the year, at some point, they had to call me out for something which they thought that I was being biased or slanted in class. And they had to do with evidence. They had to bring in evidence to suggest where they thought I was wrong about something or presenting it unfairly. But that was actually a requirement. It was an assignment to class. So it wasn't like, oh, if you're really brave, maybe you will come up with the courage. Everybody has to do this this year so that we know that it's not just a place in which it's possible to do that, but actually you have to be able to do that. Um, another thing that you can do is to make very sure that conversations in class don't devolve into the kind of silly name calling that so much of our political discourse devolves into. Students in my class just today said, can we have, today in my history class, can we have a political debate? And another student basically said, oh, she would never let that. And I said, oh, I will certainly let that. If our political debate is about, you advance a point on an issue. And then somebody else says, let me understand where you're coming from. And why do you think that? And what are the values underlying that? Now, let me tell you where I'm coming from and why I think what I think. And I said, conversations that go to you're a poopy head and you stink, that's really not, which is honestly what much of cable news um, discourse around politics, you bring on two talking heads who yell things at each other, nobody can hear anything, and then the segment is over. That's not what the kind of political debate we're going to have in this class. Um, and so there are ways to do it. Nothing feels easy right now. I said, well, we could do the election I programming we did eight years ago. There's something that's true about that, and there's something disingenuous about that. We all know it would be harder than it was eight years ago. When we are planning to do election night programming this year, and we're spending a lot of time thinking about how we do it. The history department spends way more time planning how we're going to talk about an election in class than we used to because it feels much more fraught talking about an election in class. And that's what's going on in our community, and that's a reflection of the country as a whole. Are you hopeful about the direction of citizenship and our engagement in, in, in politics or is that something that really hinges on the outcome of the upcoming election? I'm kind of trying to get a sense of, of whether you think some progress has been made or if it's we're just right in the eye of the storm right now of this election and it's hard to really uh, identify whether we've made some progress as a school community, uh, as a country on these issues. So earlier on, you asked me about my investment in citizenship and whether that comes from my perspective as a history teacher, and I said no. Here's actually where I, I feel deeply my perspective as an historian and a history teacher. I know in past movements to reshape this country, right, to bend the moral arc of the universe towards justice, I know how long it took. And now we sort of hand wave and we say civil rights movement or women's suffrage or whatever other movements for the greater recognition of the humanity of people in the United States. And we just that sort of kind of happened. The movement for meaningful rights for African-Americans met great success right after the Civil War, suffered enormous setbacks starting in the late 19th century, and then achieves great success again in the 1950s and 60s. And I think sometimes, not about the people who were the civil rights heroes that we know about, the John Lewis's and the Martin Luther King's and the C.T. Vivian's and the Diane Nash's, the people who were active then. I think about the people who were fighting in the 30s and the 40s, when it seemed like nothing was doing anything and nothing was working, and they kept on fighting again for African Americans, it was because they had absolutely no choice. There was no plan B. The only country they got, and they were going to have to figure out how to somehow make it livable for them. And we standing now and looking back say, yes, that case, and yes, that fight, and yes, that win, and yes, the NAACP cumulatively and gradually and slowly over time accomplished something and made change. I think we're impatient sometimes. I think we think the time scale of this has to happen you know, in six weeks or in four years or whatever it is, 
And I don't think that's how profound societal transformation happens. I'm going to give you an analog that you may or may not cut out of the podcast. Sometimes I am a middle-aged modern Orthodox woman. And sometimes when young modern Orthodox women get very upset about the state of things for women in the modern Orthodox community, it's not where we need to be. It's not moving far enough. It's not moving fast enough. Nothing ever happens. Nothing ever changes. I say, I agree with you about a lot of those critiques. Here's the only place I differ from you. I remember 20 years ago. And because I remember 20 years ago, I know that over a span of two decades, things are different and we're in a different place and things look different and sound different. And that doesn't mean that any of your critiques are invalid. It doesn't mean that any of the problems aren't problems. It means, what's the expression that politics is the slow boring of hard boards? Something like that. We're drilling slowly through hard wood. We're drilling slowly through hard wood. And we, if you're going to really be on board for this, you have to be on board. And if you're on board for the two weeks before an election and two weeks after an election, that's not what the work of citizenship is. The one thing I will say that is cause for optimism is that you have seen an enormous re-engagement of the American people in the work of citizenship. Not only voting, but all the other ways in which we act as citizens, in which we engage with elected officials, in which we join and form political groups, in which we do the work of advocacy, and you're seeing many more Americans realizing that this is a long-term process that we're signing up for, not a brief hop on the bandwagon, get what you want, and hop off. That's not how the work of citizenship goes. It's not how the work of parenting goes either. I, I could draw that analogy out some other time. What are the next steps, the next directions for the Machon Siach citizenship group? I understand that we haven't concluded the group and that it's somewhat of an ongoing project. What are some of the things that you are working on now as a group and thinking about moving forward? Oh, in case everything that we're working on now isn't big enough, what I think has gotten a lot of attention in the Jewish community and in the Orthodox community since last Memorial Day weekend and the murder of George Floyd is the question of race and the American modern Orthodox community. Many, many people in the modern Orthodox community have just not chosen to engage in that conversation. We've absented ourselves from the conversation. And I think that the that the uh, murder of George Floyd and the social justice movement that grew up around it and some of the demands for stepping back and thinking about the society we live in and what it looks like and what it does and to whom it doesn't are raising questions within our own community. To what extent do our students interact with other people who are not like them who make up the citizenry of the United States of America? What do we need to do as a school to educate about that? And maybe what do we need as a school to cultivate opportunities for our students to meet and get to know other Americans in a real and authentic way? There's enormous value and beauty in the ways in which we live within our modern Orthodox communities. But it does mean that many of us are not having real and meaningful encounters with other Americans outside the scope of that community. And so thinking about the modern Orthodox community and race, again, at the sort of more fundamental level, what are the issues, how do we talk about them, how do we think about them, and at the more practical level, what kind of programming might we as a high school need to run, that's some of the work the citizenship group from Machon Siach is taking on now. Very exciting and very challenging. Looking forward to welcoming you to the Grand Conversation podcast to discuss some of that work down the line. Thank you very much, Dr. Rifka Press-Schwartz, for sharing your insights. I want to encourage everyone to check out the paper online and to check out our other episodes of this podcast and our other issues of Inside the Conversation at the Mahon Siach website. Have a good day.